welcome to the FEG Insight Bridge. This is Greg Dowling, Head of Research and CIO at FEG. This show spans global markets and institutional investments through conversations with some of the world's leading investment, economic, and philanthropic minds to provide insight on how institutional investors can survive and even thrive in the world of markets and finance. FEG's Approachable Asia 2020 event was originally scheduled for this fall in Singapore. It is an event where we take a handful of our clients for boardroom-style education and to meet with local managers. Well, that was the plan before the coronavirus pandemic hit. The good news is that through a series of podcasts, you can receive the same content and get to skip the 16-hour flight. Today, we get to speak with Paul Craig, founder of View From The Peak. The Peak is Victoria's Peak, the highest point in Hong Kong. I know it well because for the longest time when I was in Hong Kong, I would stay with a good friend and his family who had an apartment near one of the trailheads. Before starting the day, and often because I was jet-lagged, I would hike up there in the morning. Victoria's Peak offers 360 views if you caught it on a clear day. And you can get an amazing perspective of the city and the surrounding islands. And that is really the aim of View from the Peak. Paul takes that 360 view on Asian public policy, economics, technology, and geopolitics with a special focus on China. It is a perspective earned over 25 years of working, researching, investing, and living in Asia. Today, we have him on the Inside Bridge. All right. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for joining us today. Greg, it's great to be here. Thank you. Before we jump into all these questions on China and Asia, would you briefly describe your firm and maybe give a little background? So View from the Peak is a investment research firm that was formed in 2011, back in the halcyon days of independent research, when it wasn't the most overpopulated sector that I could think of, and it wasn't regulated out of existence. It was formed, and the, and the firm still has its base, the basic premise, where we are a what I describe as a structural ideas factory. When the business first started in 2011, they, they were the sort of the glory days of the hedge fund world, and that was the majority of the revenue. I've found that over the course of the last nine years or so, the client base has evolved to be a much more strategic, structural client base with more family offices, more endowments and the like, probably similar to what FEG has found with its evolution over the years. But we still do the same sort of thing, which is multi-asset class, top-down investment ideas. The duration's got a little bit longer over time. We've always been very focused on being agnostic from an asset class perspective. Asia's always played a big, big role to deal with the elephant in the room. View from the peak is Victoria Peak in, in Hong Kong, where the business was first formed some nine years ago. But we do try to look at the world very much from a global perspective, even though Asia is at the center of what we do. Hey, Paul, so jumping in, we're going to focus a lot on China, but China's really changed, especially its relationship with others. So over the last, call it maybe five or so years, it feels like China has become more assertive militarily, economically, and even diplomatically with the U.S. and its Asian neighbors. What describes this change in behavior 
from China. In a word or two words, it's Xi Jinping. But I would also push back a little bit on this. And I will say from the outset that I'm an outlier in this thinking. Well, sorry, there's I'm an outlier with this wonderful academic at, um, at Cornell University by the name of Jessica Chen Wise, who has written a lot about how China is not looking to export its model, is very much focused on its own domestic security and domestic stability issues. And I think no one would dispute that. So I don't think that China is getting more outward looking. I think the opposite is occurring. And I think China is looking more inward as it deals with its issues over energy security, uh, food security, increasingly technology security surrounding issues such as supply of semiconductors. And that's something we can talk about, particularly with the big semiconductor mergers we've seen this week. But I don't think that China is looking more outward. I think the era of Trump has forced China into a foreign policy stance that it probably wouldn't embrace by itself. I do think that, you know, from the Chinese perspective, that all the criticisms they get, not only from the United States, but, you know, certainly increasingly from Europe, Australia, India, etc., that they haven't played by the rules since coming into WTO. They, well, they don't think they've done anything wrong, right? I think the best expression of this is the phase one trade deal where Ambassador Lighthizer, when this whole process started, went to the Chinese, and I think the number was 147 demands that he had of the Chinese, right? And they range from, you know, intellectual property protection to banning the exportation of fentanyl, right? So across the gamut. I think that the Chinese, of that list of 147 things, practically conceded on three of them. So I, and this goes back to the thinking that the Chinese don't believe that they've done anything wrong with this, right? They're playing by the rules that were set in front of them. You know, for example, it's still, China still claims under WTO, it's an emerging market. News alert, China ain't an emerging market, right? So I think that China has been forced to deal with a lot of these issues. I have very strong opinions that the Chinese don't want the renminbi to be a global reserve currency. Um, you know, that Belt and Road is less about spreading. Yes, it's about spreading influence, but it's also about issues of commodity security and, and things like this. So I push back a little bit on the premise because I don't think they've been as aggressive or as outward looking as what many people think. That's interesting. And so basically you're saying that if they are being a little bit or seen to being a little bit more aggressive with some territories that maybe are in dispute or with technology, it's really from the lens of the Middle Kingdom and more inward looking than, than outward looking. And again, it depends on who they're picking on, right? And I'll, I'll use that phrase. So I, I've used the expression that China's doing the rope-a-dope right now in regards to the trade deal. And for those who aren't boxing aficionados, it's a strategy Muhammad Ali adopted against George Foreman in Zaire in 1974 in the Rumble in the Jungle, where he lied back against the ropes and let Foreman beat the living daylights out of him for six rounds until Foreman was so tired he effectively fell over, right? I think China and the trade disputes adopted a similar thing because China's just leaning back against the ropes and dealing with ZTE bans and Huawei bans and potential for sale of TikTok and you know, criticism over Hong Kong and Xinjiang. And yet the Chinese have done very, very little in regards to retaliations. Now, if this was Japan, for example, you'd see you know, orchestrated riots in the streets. You'd see Nissans being burnt. You'd see, you know, in the case of Korea, when they had a dispute, I think back in 2015, I think it was, Korean grocery stores were kicked out of China. There's been a slew of things. So the Chinese are very keen to be assertive or pick on those who are not their own size, you know, and you only have to see what they've done in the South China Sea, Philippines, Vietnam, et cetera. But where it comes to bigger players, 
United States particularly, but also the EU, they're a little bit more reserved, a little bit more strategic in the way they're dealing with things. So you mentioned Xi, the chairman for life. How should we think of him? And is he as secure as we would think here in the US? Who are the other power brokers behind the scenes? So the ruler for life thing is certainly multifaceted in everything about China. The key thing here is that when he was at the last plenum, there was no secession plan put in place for him to be replaced after the token two-year term or the implied two-year term that he is now basically obfuscated. But I will say that the party is bigger than Xi Jinping. There are the faceless men behind the scenes. We don't know who they are. We can assume it's not Li Keqiang because he's been blamed for a slew of missteps along the way. We can assume that he is not as safe as what the West thinks, but there is certainly no heir apparent. And if you remember back in 2008, when Xi made it into the state council, there were people around him who potentially could have been groomed to be the the leader in 2012, we don't have that currently. But I think it's naive to think that he is an equivalent of a Putin, for example, where this is not an autocracy, this is the party first, and the party will outlive Xi Jinping, and the party will determine when Xi Jinping has run his course. What about some of the corruption crackdowns that he led when he came into power? Has he made any enemies through that? Plenty. (laughs) <laughs> is the short answer. But but that said, you know, an enemy is only a problem if they have the power to be your enemy. He's annoyed a lot of people. But let's face it, the anti-corruption campaign had two purposes. One was that when he came to office, corruption was beginning to decay the Communist Party to the point where it was losing support amongst the, the masses, right? Not that it was ever unpopular, but certainly the light that the Communist Party was seen in domestically was not as shining as it was under, say, Deng Xiaoping or the like. But also what he did was, you know, the people he got for corruption were not his guys. They were his potential political opponents. So, you know, he did a wonderful job at weeding out anyone who potentially could have been a problem. Boji Lai is, a, is an obvious example of that. So it's not like there are members of Xi Jinping's inner circle who have not profited handsomely from corruption over the years, but this anti-corruption campaign was targeted to A, get rid of his opponents. Now, is China a less corrupt place than it was? Yes. Does corruption still exist in China? Absolutely it does. I think that now we're at a stage where it is manageable. And if one of the objectives was to raise the standing of the party within China, well, the Communist Party has never been more popular in China as it is today. So, you know, if you look at the surveys by the Pew Research Center, for example, Chinese Communist Party has an approval rating of the mid in the mid 70s and US Congress has an approval rating in the low in the low teens. You know, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. So, View from the Peak, you mentioned this already, was founded in Hong Kong and and Hong Kong's certainly one of my favorite cities, have a lot of friends there. Well, I, I did have a lot of friends there. It seems like a lot of them have, have left recently. What What is the uh, new security laws? What's that going to do to the future of Hong Kong? Is it going to be this international financial center? Or, or as you kind of said earlier, is, this gonna, is Hong Kong going to be more focused on China? I was there when the handover occurred, right? There has been this organic progression where Hong Kong has become more Chinese. Now, for those people who haven't been to Hong Kong before, that sounds ridiculous, right? But it's, you know, Hong Kong when I was there was a British colony that happened to be close to China, right? 
and and over time, you know, what you've seen is just a greater cultural penetration of the mainland into into Hong Kong daily life. Now, what you've seen since the umbrella since the umbrella movement, now with the democracy, the democracy protests, and the national security laws, and you've seen this acceleration of the tearing up of the joint declaration that was meant to control how Hong Kong was governed until 2047. So Mrs. Thatcher's turning in her grave, turning in her grave right now because it's just not what was supposed to happen, right? Now, what does this mean for Hong Kong as a financial centre and the like? Well, it still does have British law for what it's worth. The fear is that the judiciary is going to be the next thing to come under Beijing's purview. Still not there yet. So we still have a, a legal system in Hong Kong, which is still independent, is still looking to adhere to the joint declaration and the like. But Hong Kong is becoming more and more Chinese by the minute. So and that's in regards to press freedoms, religious freedoms, these sort of things are slowly being curtailed. Is that going to prevent expats from going to Hong Kong as aggressively as they did? You alluded to that at the, at the start of the question. You've got a lot of friends that have left and so do I, right? Expats just don't go to Hong Kong like they used to. Non-Chinese firms don't flourish in Hong Kong like they used to. Look, over time, this path to being of Hong Kong which I tragically describe as becoming the Greenwich, Connecticut of Shenzhen, as in the green leafy suburb, a great place to live, but really economically doesn't matter. Not really, right? And I fear that's where Hong Kong, that's where Hong Kong is going. Asset management is kind of in a tough spot, right? That has been the beachhead for many folks who are sort of a, a pan-Asian fund. Maybe at some point in time, they've opened a Shanghai office or a Beijing office. But especially the expats who are there are in a tough spot because they want to sell into China because China is opening up their capital markets but they're afraid to kind of go against China. And so you see, it seems like you see a slow leakage of people to Singapore, Yep. even though they're maintaining a Hong Kong office. Is Singapore going to be the next Hong Kong? They're in strategic competition for the Western financial center in the region. Let's put it that way. I think that Singapore has done a lot of things right in the last decade. Look, you've spent time in Hong Kong. Hong Kong people have this disdain for Singapore that it's the world's most boring city. I was well and truly of that view. And I sort of evolved a little and said, Singapore's got great infrastructure and it's only slightly, and it's slightly less boring than what it was. And now it's a direct competitor. It's just a, you know, I would argue it's a better place for families. The pollution was a major reason why a lot of expats moved from Hong Kong to Singapore. The Singaporean government is, is incentivizing firms to leave Hong Kong and, and set up shop. That's only going to continue. This is a competition between two between two nation states, between two wonderful cities at their core. Unfortunately, you know, all the news for Singapore is positive and all the news in Hong Kong with the security laws and the like is 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 negative. And frankly, I don't see how that changes. Because again, if you're setting up a, you know, particularly a hedge fund, for example, the chances of you being called in by the regulators because you shorted the wrong stock, you can't discount that. You know, again, if you're if you are setting up a business in Asia for the first time, where is your low-hanging fruit? Well, it's not going to Hong Kong and dealing with security laws, an uncertain regulatory environment, jurisdictionally being unclear about where things are. You go to Singapore, it's clean, it's a clean, easy environment to set up you know, your Asian hub. 
So we've talked about Hong Kong, its competition with, with Singapore. I feel like we also have to talk about Taiwan. How real is the possibility that the Chinese do something militarily with Taiwan? It would certainly help their chip problem. It would certainly help their chip problem, and they have a major chip problem. I think the way to focus on this is that China and Xi Jinping have spoken on numerous occasions about the need to reunify. 50 years is the number that often gets talked about and the like, and you know, we often get too fixated on China and having this multi-generational view, view of the world, which is true in some ways, not in others. But I think the biggest way to look at this is through the lens of the perceived defense shield that the United States has with Taiwan through the, the 1979 agreement. I don't know if push comes to shove, if Xi Jinping raids the beaches of Taiwan whether the, the United States would risk a hot war with a nuclear power to save Taiwan. I just don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if Japan would risk it. I don't know if Korea would risk it. And that's the tragedy of Taiwan. And particularly given the fact now you have a Taiwanese administration, which is as aggressive, stridently independent as had any government, in, in, I'd argue, in modern history in Taiwan, who are continually poking eyes you know, at Beijing in regards to accepting effectively state visits from the United States, from the health secretary and the like. China gets one chance to take back Taiwan. I think their preference, obviously, is not to do this militarily because the problem is that they try to do it militarily and they fail. There's not many things that could see Xi Jinping fall quickly and instantly, but that would probably, a defeat trying to take Taiwan militarily would take down any Chinese premier. One of the reasons, obviously, there's that shared history. It's the one China policy. I mentioned maybe a little facetiously about chips, but China is short chips. So maybe if we talk a little bit about technology, it seems like a great investment opportunity for any investor would be to provide capital to this growing industry that's going to supply the domestic market for Chinese chips and semiconductors. Yeah. And if you can look at this on a five-year viewpoint, I think the answer to your question is categorically yes. The trouble is you know, for the next five years, because the we talked at the start about strategic vulnerabilities. We know about food and we know about energy and China are doing their best to deal with those issues. But the Trump administration, either through accident or design, have stumbled across what I argue is China's biggest strategic vulnerability, and that's access to high-end chips. So if you look at the embargoes that exist on companies like High Silicon, for example, to you know, Huawei's semiconductor business. Basically, what the embargoes imply is that if you produce 10% of that content of any chip is made by an American firm or in the United States, then that chip can't be sold to high silicon and it's going to probably be extended to a slew of other Chinese companies as well. So NVIDIA, NVIDIA this week comes out and buys ARM. The best, I would argue, ARM is the best chip designer on the planet. Suddenly, a supplier of Huawei chips and design has become an American company. So if there was ambiguity over whether or not ARM could have sold chips because there was some American design in there and some not a complicated issue, the fact that it's now, well, it will be in 18, probably in 18 months' time, a domiciled American company means that Huawei can't buy those chips. And the, where this gets really complicated is that in Taiwan, you have TSMC, which is now one of the 10 most valuable companies on the planet. 
it is the biggest supplier of chips to China. And if you go through their high-end chips, well, there's a lot of American design in those high-end chips. The question, the key question is, is the United States government under Trump, I think this goes away under Biden, but under Trump, are they prepared to embargo TSMC from selling American chip, those, those chips with American design in them, to China? If that's the case, then China's AI ambitions have real problems because companies like SMIC can make all the, all the mobile phone chips that they like. They can make those low-end chips that we use in, in all the stuff that you and I use every day. What they can't produce is the high-end chips that are used in AI research or in autonomous vehicle programs and that sort of thing. And that creates a problem. So depending on who you ask, a company like Huawei, for example, has somewhere between 12 and 12 months and 24 months worth of chips stockpile. And they have been buying chips off anyone who would sell them to them for the past three years because they saw this coming. Then what? So if you, you could have it literally have a situation where China's AI ambitions stall, their biggest global brand runs out of the stuff that drives not inconceivable in the next one to two years. Fascinating. Besides technology, it seems as we record this, we're in that silly season here in the United States, which is election time. The one thing that Republicans and Democrats both agree on is China, at least the rhetoric towards China. And part of that seems to be a wish, and perhaps it's just a wish, to onshore manufacturing back to the U.S., how easy or difficult is that going to be to bring back basic manufacturing or even pharmaceutical type of manufacturing back to the States? We did an event last Thursday with the US-China Business Council on the, on the future of the Chinese supply chain. And the overriding observation was that there is no appetite, practically, economically, strategically, to bring back manufacturing in medical semis, apparel, chemicals, industrial, to bring that manufacturing back to the United States. You know, the automotive industry, for example, produces all around the world. But when you've got China as the world's biggest car market and by multiple factors, the world's biggest EV market, which is where every OEM wants to take their business, they're not bringing that manufacturing back from China to build it in Kentucky when the only place you sell those cars is pretty much in North America. So the medical supply chain was the fascinating one because that's the one which has obviously been exposed as a legitimate national security concern under COVID. But if you talk to companies like Merck, like J&J, like, like Abbott Labs, you know these, they're going to say, look, if you bring back the production of either generic pharmaceuticals or uh, patented pharmaceuticals. You've got to bring back the chemicals. You've got to bring back the packaging. You've got to bring back all those factors to the United States. And what you do with that is increase your cost base by somewhere, depending on the product, between 25 and 100%. At the, at the end of the day, economically, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to do this. Now, clearly, there are national security pressures on the medical supply chain. For example, I was chatting to a physician who is and a scientist who's deeply involved in the eventual production of COVID vaccine. The United States doesn't have enough industrial glass vials to produce hundreds of thousands of doses of a COVID vaccine. Give you three guesses where they make all the industrial glass vials. I only need one. You would have to store these doses in industrial medical grade refrigerators that have to go to minus 70 degrees. 
We don't have enough of those. Give you three guesses where they're made. Again, we're in this position because when the world went into globalization hyperdrive back in the late mid 90s, China was the cheapest place to outsource everything. Now it's gone from the cheapest place to outsource everything to the best place to outsource everything. People talk about, well, you can send stuff to India or Vietnam. A great statistic is that China produces roughly one in five global exports. Vietnam produces 2% of global exports. So to to reduce your Chinese supply chain by 10% and move that to Vietnam, you'd have to double Vietnam's export capacity. Simply just can't do it overnight. It's not even just the workers and factories. It's the logistics, right? It's getting the railhead. It's getting the ports in to handle all that. I mean, that's a big lift. When's the last time you drove from the airport in Mumbai to the center of town? (laughs) It ain't going to India. Right. And look, India has merit in particularly in the medical supply chain because it does have a big generics business and industry and the like. But at the end of the day, China just does this better than everybody else. Bringing stuff back to the United States from a low end manufacturing. Well, here's a good example, right? United States has banned Huawei from its 5G networks. The dirty little secret is that the UK admitted recently, but the US won't admit it's going to delay the 5G rollout by two to three years. So if you're a you know, let's say you're Merck, for example, and you want to bring back production of certain pharmaceuticals to the United States. Are you going to abandon your 5G-enabled factory in China to bring it back to the United States with a less qualified workforce, higher paid workforce, and the most cutting-edge plant you can build doesn't have 5G capability? Why would they do that? unless they are forced to. And the reality is that whilst there could be pressure from the Trump administration to do something, if you look back over the course of the last four years, there has been very, very little movement in regards to structural production coming back from overseas back to the United States. It's hard. We are so intertwined with China. Our clients, and rightfully so, are very concerned about the climate and the impact of climate change. But if we put up a bunch of new solar panels, where are they made? China. If we have more batteries, we need more lithium. We need more rare earths. Where are they made? China. We are attached at the hip to China. The way I think about this is, and the sort of the message we deliver with the US-China series is, look, you can't ignore every stakeholder here. So if you want to have a conversation about semiconductors, for example, You've got to have conversations with the Chinese investors, with Chinese academics, with all the stakeholders, and you've got to have tough conversations. You say to the Chinese, we'll give you access to high-end chips, but you do something about Xinjiang. We'll give you access to the CPUs that have been produced by or designed by ARM, but you have to give us real guarantees, not faux guarantees, real guarantees about data security. And about and you guys backing away from cyber theft. So issues where the Trump administration has gone awry is, you know, this whole thing with TikTok is a great example. Could you imagine what the American government and the American population would say if the Chinese woke up one morning and said to McDonald's, McDonald's, we don't like what you do with the data. You need to sell every restaurant to Yum China. Yeah, this is corporate extortion. And it's just not the way to not the way to act. So America does have cards it can play. This semiconductor card is a big one. 
And if you have a Biden presidency, I think we'll move more from a corporate reciprocity framework, which we have currently. And there will be a greater focus, I think, on South China Sea and military issues and human rights. But use this card of chips and say, look, this is a to and fro. Lighthizer gave you 147 things that we wanted to deal with. You dealt with three of them. How about we start with dealing with 20 of them? And this is never going to be perfect, but there has to be a back and forth. And currently, there hasn't been a back and forth. So you are an Aussie, and we're taking this from a US perspective. What's the perspective of other stakeholders, other countries, Australia, EU, Japan? How do they manage this relationship with China? I think that if the Trump administration didn't go it alone, this era of anti-globalization or the realization that China hasn't played by the rules had such an ability to change China. You're never going to change China you know, structurally. It's just a different economic, social, and political model to what we have. But the Chinese can handle a trade dispute with the US. That's a battle of equals. What it couldn't have done is dealt with a trade dispute that included the EU, included Australia, included Canada, included Japan. When you put those blocks together, if there is a uniform approach that dealt with issues of data security, cybersecurity, unfair trade practices, particularly if the EU is involved, human rights abuses, climate, you could have got China to change. Now, what I suspect happens is if you do have a Biden presidency, that Biden is going to go cap in hand to Trudeau, Macron, Merkel, et cetera, et cetera, and say, sorry about the last four years, our bad, really, really sorry. Can we start over? And by the way, we need to do this with China. What you're seeing, particularly Australia is a good example, which has had a lot of interference by the Chinese and is pushing back hard against the Chinese on a slew of issues. Same with Europe, particularly France. I think that there's scope to get the Chinese to change. But again, first and foremost, if it does occur, the Americans have to go cap in hand and say, we have to start using those international institutions that have been abandoned in the last four years. So one area that it seems China has continued to open up is their capital markets. Talk a little bit about the progression of China being financed only through kind of the local banks to the opening up of the stock market, the bond market, and what that means for international investors. Again, I'll take the contrarian view here. And I don't think it's as open as what people think. Go back to 2015, China, uh, the IMF allows the renminbi to go into the special drawing rights basket, which is this symbolic basket of goods. I've actually never met anyone who's actually bought an SDR in their lives, right? So it's just this symbolic thing. The Chinese then turned around and basically closed their capital account immediately afterwards, right? If you want to know how difficult it is to do a Forex transaction, bring the treasury people at Starbucks and they'll say it can take up to three months to get approval for a $10 million wire transfer. This is not an open capital market. Yes, you have the stock connect. Yes, you have the bond connect, which is important, but still relatively small. So I push back. I think the Chinese capital markets have got more sophisticated domestically. Hong Kong, for all its problems with the national security law, is still going to be the preferred place for large Chinese companies to IPO. And you'll see this with Ant Financial. You'll see it with Didi eventually. You know, Didi eventually goes public, those sort of things. It's going to get increasingly interesting as there is pressure on Chinese company listings here in the United States, which is stemmed from a Marco Rubio put it through a proposal last year called the Equitable Act, which effectively is the foundation 
for what standards will need to be met for Chinese companies to list and or remain listing on US exchanges. But at the end of the day, it's very easy to put money into China. It's tough to get it out. The best thing that happens to the Chinese anytime soon is to get Chinese bond weightings in the old Lehman indices and the like, get that elevated because that's effectively its permanent capital. And you know, China loves things like MSCI inclusion because effectively it's permanent capital. And money can go back and forth via the connect, but you're never going to see the real capital flight fears, which is the ultimate concern for Beijing. Because if you control how money leaves your country, you don't have an economic crisis like, like the world in 2008 or the re- very relevant one with the Asian crisis in 97 and 98. And it's the primary reason Japan avoided its crisis because everything was held so tightly in domestic hands. But don't they need to eventually expand that, right? Because they are growing so much through the banks and the local banks have a bunch of bad debt and then the government bails them out and you keep doing this over and over again. Don't they need to have a very robust capital market to get to that next level? I'm not saying their capital markets are not robust. They're just not robust in the ways that we think about it. You know, if you ask free market people in the United States, that short selling is a very necessary part of liquidity to the markets and the like. There are countries around the world who routinely ban short selling and their markets still function. It maybe doesn't function like we think they should function, but you know, short selling is one of those things which it's debatable whether it's the linchpin of a, of a healthy functioning you know, set of capital markets. Look, China, the bad debt issues often get talked about. Do they underestimate their bad debt position? Yes. Have we in the West predicted 15 of the last zero blowups in the Chinese bond market in the last 25 years? Yes. Still, it's not like they don't have an ability to raise capital. China's savings rate is still far too high. We know that. I think that there will be a push going forward for, I think, structurally a stronger currency longer term, because that obviously helps with domestic consumption and domestic investment. Hopefully, will be something that can get the savings rate down as well, because that does create inefficiencies. But look, the government is in control of that model. Now, if you put a Western credit model on China, it doesn't work, right? But I say this a lot. You know, Lehman Brothers would probably still exist if it was a Chinese company because Lehman Brothers was derailed by mark-to-market accounting. You can't tell me there aren't dozens of Chinese companies that have had a similar debt profile to Lehman Brothers, except if you mark the, the loans at book, you don't have a problem. And their argument has been, and Frankly, it's worked in many cases that if you don't mark things to market and you grow at 6% for year after year after year, then eventually you grow your way out of the problem. Now, is that sustainable? Probably not, but it's worked so far. Are you saying there isn't the same price discovery as we have here in the West? I am saying there is not the same price discovery. (laughs) You don't have the same accounting stand. It's one of the complaints about Chinese listings here in the United States is that, is it too much to ask a Chinese company listed in America, taking American money from American pensions and the like, that they have the same accounting standards as American peers? I have no problem with that at all. I think there's a very valid request from the SEC to have. But the Chinese don't think that's a problem because they don't have those accounting standards, right? They don't they don't deal in gap. If you're dealing with different standards, and this goes to the crux of the whole problem that the United States has with understanding China, i.e. it doesn't understand China, is because it is such a different model. It's a politically different model, socially different model, you know, economically different model. It has different models of accounting. It just does things differently. And you're never going to get a resolution to tensions until at a minimum you appreciate the differences between the two sides. So from an investment perspective, there's a lot of risk 
so eyes wide open, but it's also a land of opportunity. How would you advise a, a investor? What areas of the market would you look? Is it A shares? Is it RMB? Is it currency? What are those opportunities now and in, in the future in China? So it's the, for me, it's the equity market. And I think the biggest thing to point out is that the average Chinese household balance sheet has 6% of their net wealth in equity. Too heavily skewed towards property and, and savings, as the savings rate would indicate. They don't own enough equity. So if you look throughout history at markets that have had a dramatic increase in the percentage of equity held per household, what tends to happen is that they tend to find the equivalent of the nifty 50, you know, and we have the equivalent now of the nifty five, which is FANG, right? Where the vast majority of stable brokerage firms in terms of assets, most of them have Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google. So where the opportunity set in China, I think, is very exciting is that when you develop a mindset of equity ownership, and that will come, what are the 2550 stocks that are going to be the staple of every household balance sheet? The ones that sort of come to mind are the likes of Alibaba and Baidu, Tencent, JD, these sort of companies. So I think it's very, very tech-focused. You know, you're going to see, you know, eventually when they go public, it'll be stocks like Didi and Financial will be probably on that list as well. So I think the big picture, the opportunity is looking at in a similar vein to what you see here is what are those 20 companies that are going to change the way that the average Chinese citizen eats, works, entertains themselves and shops. You think about that mindset, particularly here with COVID, and that's why you naturally gravitate towards the Amazons and towards Google and Microsoft and increasingly Zoom is every, you know, once you become a verb, you know you've made it as a company. I don't know what the equivalent of doing stuff on Alibaba will be, but that is the verb of shopping in China. For me, that's the opportunity set of those, the household names that the household balance sheet must own. What about the domestic opportunity? I mean, certainly they have the equivalent of the fangs, they have the bats. Outside of that, are there opportunities in some of these smaller companies where maybe for active management could work a little better in the A-share market than it does here in the West currently? Look, I think what we're going to face globally is an issue where mega cap companies are going to dominate every facet of life. And whilst there will always be opportunities in small cap companies, you had a, a the natural spring water company just go public in Hong Kong at a thousand times oversubscribed. There will always be examples of companies like that. If you are a passive style investor in China, if this is not your core holding, clearly from an endowment standpoint, your client base is going to be investing in high quality managers. But if you're a passive investor looking to get exposure to China, that's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is in terms of those dozen companies, those 20 companies that are going to dominate every facet of Chinese lifestyle. I remember growing up in the early 80s, it felt like Japan was going to take over the world. And we had movies like Gung Ho and others that kind of pointed this out. We saw this on the news. It feels a little bit like that with China. And especially it feels that way right now because they've done a much better job handling COVID. We have civil unrest here in the streets. We have a lot of unhealthy political uh, bickering going on. China seems like they've got it all together, but no country is perfect. You mentioned a couple of things earlier, but what are some of the issues that are hiding behind the scenes, whether it is food security, demographics, pollution, local debt. What are some of those issues that people aren't talking about, but are real issues that China has to face over the next 10, 20 years? Key one is demographics. The one-child policy could be one of the great strategic blunders in modern Chinese history. 
at the end of the day, to put it bluntly, China has too many dudes. It's going to face social issues. There's a class of men who will never marry. If you go back and look at social unrest in the last several hundred years, there is a common theme there, and that is a class of unmarried, unemployed men who don't see themselves as having prospect. And you can't discount the marriage thing because yeah, particularly in strong family cultures like China, if you know if you can't make a good living, you're not a good husband, right? And you know these things can feed on themselves. So the demographic issue is a big one. Does China get old before it gets rich? Is the way to think about it, which is commonly said. And they are racing against time to do that. I don't see a strategic rival in the region. I don't think India is there, even though it has a lot of things going for it that China does not. And that's certainly a demographic dividend that it can clip at some stage. Look, it's not certain. I think that the tech security issue is a big one for me. The one where it could go awry is a mishandling of Taiwan. I mean, again, these are very low probability events. But look, I mean, I think that we've got a country that is indifference to the United States that is being centrally planned. And whilst there is going to be misallocation of resources in a centrally planned economy, you get things done. So a good example is I was chatting to Representative Rick Larson, who's the co-chair of the US-China Working Group. And Rick was talking about the 5G rollout and how, and I said, look, America's three years behind and could be five years behind in very short order. And he said, because we're not doing a single 5G rollout, we're doing five 5G rollouts because we do one with AT&T, we do one with Sprint, we do one with T-Mobile, Verizon, et cetera. And not having that centralized policy, you know, obviously has its advantages as the United States is one of the most efficient economies in the world, but it does prevent big infrastructure projects from getting done. And that, I think, is one of the huge advantages that China has and could make this process of them being as strong as they are much more sustainable than than other societies before them. What about pollution or, or food security? They're taking it more seriously. They're taking it a lot more seriously. The pollution side of things was viewed as a social unrest issue. They take it a lot more seriously than what they did and push the electric vehicle programs that they have no small part designed to make sure that that goes on. The issues around climate are real. I think that if you are going to see a conflict with China over the course of the next decade or two, it could well be with their neighbours over water rights because there are lots of dams getting built in the Himalayas right now. And Tibet obviously is the source of, I think the number is a third of the fresh water on the planet sits in Tibet or in the Himalayas, I should say. And that's very, very, very important. But I think they're getting a handle on this. I think they are getting a handle on all of this. The food security thing I find fascinating because I think that China, I think, is going to be the epicenter of things like plant-based meat proteins and they're doing a hell of a lot of innovation in those sectors. And again, it's all part of the drive for food security. So you know, if they get this right, they could be energy self-sufficient quite soon. They're obviously going to be still remain for a long time a big importer of nat- particularly natural gas from Russia, but their push towards renewables is as aggressive as anywhere in the world and certainly much more aggressive than what we're seeing here. Well, Paul, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I've learned a ton. So thank you for doing this for our clients. We really appreciate it. Greg, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll do this again soon. Thank you. If you are interested in more information on the topic, please go to our website where we will have a list of relevant FEG publications. And don't forget to subscribe to our communications at www.feg.com backslash subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. 
Please keep in mind that this information is intended to be general education that needs to be framed within the unique risk and return objectives of each client. Therefore, nobody should consider these FEG recommendations. This podcast was prepared by FEG. Neither the information nor any opinion expressed in this podcast constitutes an offer or an invitation to make an offer to buy or sell any securities. The views or opinions expressed by guest speakers are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FEG.